May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please do have a seat. Uh, good morning, everybody. It, it's great uh, to be here. I've, I've been here before, actually. I spoke at the church weekend about six years ago, or maybe even seven years ago now. And so it, it's nice to see one or two familiar faces, um, but only one or two, which I guess is testimony to the massive turnover uh, of this uh, church. But it's great to be uh, with you this morning. It'd be great if you could keep open your Bibles there at that psalm, Psalm 105 on page 607. It's a long psalm. We're going to be focusing mainly on the first uh, seven verses this morning, but also trying to take in the whole of uh, the Word of God in this psalm. Thank you so much, Tom and uh, the leaders here for trusting me with uh, the opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. Teacher asked the Pharisee, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Or to put it another way, when it comes to defining the central purpose of our lives, what in the law of God is the one commandment that should lie at the center of our highest ambitions. What is it, Jesus? Greatest commandment. The most important one answered, Jesus, is this, Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, Psalm 105, the song of worship we're looking at this morning, belongs to a group of psalms called the imperative psalms, psalms that are structured in the form of a commandment, an instruction. Last week in Psalm 104, you'll recall, the psalmist showed us how creation reveals the magisterial beauty of the God we worship. But as the psalmist writes, he addresses the implications of what he sees to himself. Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praises to my God as long as I live. And there at the end, praise the Lord, my soul. You see, he's talking to himself. He's responding to what he sees of the glory of God from his own heart. But in today's psalm, the psalmist, the poet, wants to draw everybody else in as well. He begins with an imperative. Give praise to the Lord, he says. Proclaim his name. An imperative. And then there's another, verse 2. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Make known among the nations what he has done. And another, verse 3. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord, rejoice. And another, verse 4, look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his name always, always, all of the time, not some of the time, all of the time. Seek his name. And finally, verse 5 through verse 7, remember, remember the wonders 
he has done. So this is a, guys, are you with me here this morning? Sort of psalm, you see. It's meant to wake us up. The psalmist isn't talking out of his own little private response to the glory of God. It's something he opens out and he calls us all into the response he'd found in his own heart. And if you look a little closer at this list of commandments in these first seven verses, you will notice that one theme unites them. What's that? Put God at the center of your worship. That's the theme. Precisely the principle that Jesus sets out so clearly in Matthew, isn't it? And that shouldn't for one moment come as a surprise, should it? Because Jesus, the word of God, speaks the same in all the scriptures. So the psalmist, inspired by the same Holy Spirit, sets this truth before us too. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind. How did Augustine of Hippo, one of the great fathers of the church in the fourth century, how did he address this order of priority? Famously, Augustine said, love God first, he said. Make him your highest love and then love everything else in your life, everything else, your family, your material goods, your interests, your hobbies, your sports, your holidays. Love everything else in your life for the sake of that higher good, your love for God and for his kingdom. And if you can't find a way of framing, of, of, of understanding that love within that wider context of your first love for God, if you can't find a way of understanding our need for a holiday and going on a holiday as a family in the context of your love for God, that this is something he desires for you, this is something he takes pleasure in, that you have rest and refreshment. If you can't see your work as something framed within the love of God, which is your highest love, if you can't see your material things within the context of your first love for God, if you can't understand them as somehow bringing him pleasure as well as you share them with others, if you can't see them, then don't do them at all. Don't love them at all. Because there's something wrong. Love God first, said Augustine, and then everything else for the sake of God, his kingdom. And above all other loves, let your hearts be ordered first toward God. Get this right, is to live a rightly ordered life, drawn deeper into God. Get it wrong, and we fall into sin and disintegration. So how do we take this, this first duty seriously? Well, I think we need to get two questions clearer in our minds. First, 
does this love actually look like for me, for us as a church? And, and then second, how do I cultivate and nurture this love in, in my soul? So what does it look like and how do I get it? How do I nurture it? How do I build it? And, and this is where the psalmist comes to our help this morning. He doesn't answer those two big questions exhaustively, of course, but, but he gets us started. Let's see how. First, verses 1 to 7. What does love for God as our first priority look like? Let's read these verses together just now, shall we? Psalm 105, verse 1 through 7. Let's, let's read them together. Together, give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, look to the Lord and his strength, seek his face always, remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced, you his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. So what does God look like? The great old, what does love for God look like? The great Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner suggests these seven verses are like a diamond turned this way and that, each facet displaying a different kind of rightly ordered love for God, a different aspect of right love. One facet, the light sparkling on the surface, shows us, verse 1, that love praises him. Now, now, we praise somebody, don't we, when we esteem them for their, their virtues, their qualities, don't we? You're amazing. Wow. You're beautiful. Hey, you're smart. And we see goodness or beauty or truth in another human soul. And love compels us to, to draw it out and to, to celebrate it in that person and with that person and, and to draw other people in as well. Isn't she beautiful? Look at that. That's amazing. Do you see it? And then another sparkling facet here. Love for God proclaims his name because his name reveals his character. He's made himself known to us, and we tell people about that. And another facet catching the light shows us that love delights in what he has done. Verse 2, tell of all his wonderful acts. Verse 5, remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. And then last, the last facet... Love responds to these past blessings with a desire for more, more. It comes back for more. Look to the Lord for his strength. Seek his face always, not some of the time, always. 
For love is a consuming thing. So we praise God. That's how we express our love for him as our highest value. Now, of course, lovers express their love in words, don't they? So rightly, when we come together, we come with words to speak about God. We, we talk about his beauty and his goodness and truth. We explain the aspects of his character to one another. Of course, this is a critical foundation of faith to know about him. But the foundation, friends, everybody, isn't the culmination of biblical faith. No, 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 no. The purpose of our knowing about him is to give praise to him. That's what the psalmist is saying here. He's calling us to take what God has revealed about his beautiful self and like a mirror, reflect it back to him and celebrate with him and with each other. And so we don't come to talk about this third person here. We come together into church to encounter the living God and to lift our hearts to him. But then, if you think about it, lovers express their love with more than just words, don't they? Now look again at verse 1. Give praise to the Lord. The, the Hebrew word there for praise is quite an unusual one for the word praise in the Bible. Um, it probably derived, it's actually the word yada. You'd be pleased to know I consulted a top Hebrew expert who lives not too far away. It's probably derived from Hebrew for the hand yad. Yad. Yada, praise. And also, in other parts of the scripture, the, the word yada, praise, also used to throw and, and to shoot an arrow, even in Jeremiah 55. So what, what does he mean, yada, here, to praise God, using this link to the word hand? Well, when it's used in the context of giving thanks, it likely refers, yada, to the gestures that accompany gratitude as well doesn't it? Thank you so much, we say. Brilliant. Great. Thank you. Well, you might even give someone a kiss or give them a hug. Thank you. Amazing. Mm, now, I'd look, I, I don't want to get into whether we gesture with our hands during worship, although many people, including me, find it opens up the heart. I hit a point one day, I thought, I'm not going to care what everybody else thinks about my putting my hands up. I'm going to put my hands up and go to open my heart. And I found that God blessed that. But it's not for everyone. It's the underlying point here that matters, though. The underlying point is that to express our love with praise for God is a whole person thing. Just as it, it, it's a whole person thing when we express our love to somebody else that we love, another person that we love. We do it with our hands. We reach out with our 
bodies. It, it calls all of our being into this task to praise God. All of our bodies. The bodies that Paul calls us to make a living sacrifice. Not just gathering together as bodies here in church, but as we go out into the world during the week, all of our lives embody this act of praise to, to God, which is our reasonable worship, Paul says in verse 12, uh, 1 of Romans 12, our reasonable worship or praise. And so, you see, heartfelt praise gives expression to that deeper truth. It's all of our bodies. As does the instruction there in verse 2, sing to him. Sing praise to him. As we mobilize our bodies, the full range of our vocal cords, and we gather our bodies together, and we seek to sing in some kind of harmony and to stir one another up. And the musicians bring out the beauty of the passage and seek to elevate our worship. We're here to do business with the living God. So we sing. You see, friends, when, when, when we become a follower of Christ, it, it really is about doing that. Business with the living God. And the scriptures say that even when he sees our most stumbling efforts to make this real in our lives, to give him praise. Do you know what the scriptures say? Psalm 22, verse 3. They tell us that the Lord himself comes to inhabit the praise of his people. Inhabit. Inhabit. He makes himself at home in our praise. That is why this call to praise, to worship, to love is the first duty of our lives. Because it not only points us home, it brings us home into the presence of God himself. Hold on a minute. Let's take a reality check for a minute, shall we? Sounds good, doesn't it? I guess the reality of all our lives is a long, long way from this, isn't it? Mine is. So that really brings us to that second question. We've said, what does love look like? And, and now, well, how, how do we nurture this love in our souls, in our lives? Two things here. First, as the psalmist has already said in these verses 1 to 7, it begins with obedience. You just do it. That's how you nurture it. You do it. This divine imperative, do you notice, comes with no qualifications. Give praise to the Lord, says the psalmist, full stop. I don't see it here, do you? Give praise to the Lord when it suits you. When provided nothing else has come along at the time. If you got that call, somebody else taking you out for brunch. Or you commit. We commit to a disciplined, habit-filled life of 
doing praise. That's how we find love and nurture love in our lives. You know, back in the 1970s, when I first started my career in psychiatry, a psychiatrist called Aaron Beck in the US, he was developing a theory which was to revolutionize mental health treatments around the globe. Beck noticed that, that all his depressed patients had similarities in how they viewed the world around them. And he said, look, if, if you look carefully at people, you see a pattern of negative, distorted ways of thinking, thinking patterns. And he said, if you look a little more carefully still, these negative thinking patterns are associated with negative behaviors, avoiding people, giving up interests, stop taking exercise, that sort of thing. Now, in the past, before Beck, psychiatrists had focused largely on trying to change people's mood, to try to get people to feel better. Beck proposed that we look at things the other way around. Rather than trying to change people's feelings, he said, get them to change their behavior and their thinking, and then the feelings may often follow. So he encouraged his patients to do things differently, even when they didn't feel that way. Take exercise, adopt a routine, even though you don't feel like it, do it. Behavior, practice new habits, he said, and gradually over time, the feelings will follow. And friends, this is one of the most common treatments for mental health problems today. Now, says the psalmist, it's the same principle here. He's calling us to adopt new habits of praise. Tom, where should we go from here? Should we sing for a moment and then come back? Or what, what do you think? Um, what's the best way of... Just going forward. Yeah, just, okay, we're okay, good stuff, thank you. So, for the psalmist, it's the same pattern here. Practice new habits of behavior, gradually over time, the feelings can follow. He's calling us to adopt habits of praise, to Give praise to God. No mention of whether we feel like it or not. Or whether we happen to believe that God is treating us well just now. No, no, no. No, that's contingent praise. That's praise that goes up when I'm feeling up and down, when I'm feeling down. This is praise rooted not in the ups and downs of my life, but in the unchanging splendor and mystery of God. You know, everybody, one of the most moving passages that illustrates this, I think, in the whole of the Bible is found in Habakkuk, chapter 3. And I, I want you to turn that up. It's page 942 in your Bible. Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk's looking out over a world in disintegration and devastation under the judgment of God. People who've lost their way. A world that's been blown apart. And look what he says, verse 17, chapter 3. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes in the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful. God my saviour that extraordinary he just does it because he trusts his God so that's the first thing that's the first way in which the psalmist helps us to nurture this first love the second thing is to help us to help us nurture it is found in the command in verse 5 to remember, to remember. Do you see it there? Remember the wonders he has done. Last week in Psalm 104, the Psalm 104, the psalmist showed us how this love for God is kindled by paying attention to what's seen of his character in creation. Now, for the remainder of this psalm, the poet shows us how love for God is kindled by paying attention to what we see of his character in history, in salvation history. And for all of the remaining verses of this psalm, verses 8 through 44, the psalmist shows us what that remembering, that calling to mind can look like. Now, this is a long section, everybody, and we already heard the captain's tell us strap on our seat belts we're coming in to land so we're just going to look at three key points or a couple of key points from these verses first each of these events is presented to us in a way that underscores the grace and the sovereignty of God friends if you want to look at the history of the Israelite people under the hand of God and God's dealings with them. There's plenty to talk about in terms of how they respond to God. We could talk about Jacob, one of the most distasteful people that you could meet. A fraudster, a crook, deceptive person. We could talk about Joseph and his narcissism in his early life. We could talk about the patriarchs who struggle to get right God's claim on their lives. We talk about all of that. The psalmist talks about none of it. Why? Because he wants us to focus on the reality that in all of the struggles and the realities of our lives, God is on his throne. He is Lord in the mystery of beauty, splendor of his being, his will will be done. And so we see it here. We kick off with Abraham and Jacob in verses 8 to 15, focusing not on their 
extraordinary adventures, but on the covenant God made with Abraham and then confirmed to Jacob. And in verse 12, his faithfulness to them when they were few in number in danger of being wiped out. That's the first section. Then the second section, verses 16 through 13 through 38, comes Joseph and the events leading up to the exodus out of bondage in Egypt. Then in the third and final section, verse 39 to 44, 39 to 44, we have the exodus itself. Now, as I say, the next psalm, 106, is going to focus on the people's unfaithfulness and disobedience. This psalm focuses on the sovereign majesty of a God in control. So note the terse simplicity of the verbs scattered through these verses. He sent, he spoke, he gave, he struck, he opened. You see, over and over again, it is God seeing through his promises to his people, not their stumbling responses. And that brings us to the very last verse, verse 45. Why must we remember? Why do all this remembering? Do you see it there? Here's the point, verse 45. That they might keep his precepts and observe his laws. That's why we remember the things of God. And the greatest of all these precepts and all these laws, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And so how else could he finish our psalmist? And with praise the Lord. It is our calling, friends, this morning. It is our duty. It is our destiny. Well, we need to wrap up. What do we take away from this this morning? Well, first, two quick points. All the mighty acts of God in human history culminating, of course, in sending his own son, Jesus, to die for us and to rise for us, have this one purpose, that our hearts might be rightly ordered. That's what it's all for. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about what our salvation is. And it's a wonderful thing that Jesus came and died for us. But I often want to say, yes, but now tell us, what's it for? What's it for, all of this, these mighty acts of God? It is for this, that our hearts might be rightly ordered, ordered to their true end, which is to love God above all else. Get that right. We have life get it wrong we're living disordered lives that lead to disintegration and unhappiness now where am I where where are you with that make love your highest ambition 
Then love all these other things, music, art, your work, the stuff we order online, dropping through the door, our family, all of these other loves in our lives. Love them for his sake and for his glory. And if we can't do that, stop doing them. Because our hearts are being captured by idols. And crucify those desires, says Paul. And then second, how do we kindle, how do we keep alive this great ambition in our lives to put God first? Just do it. Just do it. Every Sunday morning, get out of bed and say it's Sunday. And on Sundays we gather together and we go to church. And we get out of the door and we assemble bodies to give expression to our faith and we unite in singing and we lift the name of Jesus high and we just do it and in the mornings as we're trying to get things together we 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 find a moment to put God first today to honor him to ask that in all these other loves that will preoccupy us this day they may be in some way for his glory his kingdom just do it. Then wait for the feelings. Cultivate love in praise. And remember that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people at home tomorrow morning, here in this place. And he will bring us home. Amen. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, thank you so much for your wonderful word. Thank you for this psalmist. We wonder what he was doing as he wrote these words. Where, what the context was. What people were struggling with at the time. Lord, we thank you. We stand on the shoulders of giants. And we pray that we may be worthy of them and above all worthy of your son Jesus. And that we may own his name above all else. Amen.